Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, it's Jonathan Putnam. I've been spending an all-American 4th of July holiday on Cape Cod with my family, enjoying fireworks and baseball and mini-golf. I'm excited that you're sharing the Young Lincoln episode of 10 American Presidents that Royfield and I have been working on for several months. And I'm also excited that my new Lincoln and Speed mystery is being published this week. My Lincoln and Speed series of historical mysteries features the young Lincoln and his real-life best friend, Joshua Speed, solving mysteries based on Lincoln's actual law practice as a kind of Holmes and Watson on the American frontier. My new book, Final Resting Place, is available everywhere books are sold, as are the two earlier books in the series, These Honored Dead and Perish from the Earth. If you're a real Lincoln aficionado, you'll have recognized that each of the titles are phrases from the Gettysburg Address. I hope you'll check them out. For more information, see my website, www.jonathanfputnam.com. And I hope you enjoy our podcast. Welcome to part one of Jonathan Putnam's excellent narration of the life of young Abraham Lincoln. We will conclude the early life of America's greatest president next month in part two. I'm very excited to have Jonathan on the show as he is a noted Lincoln author and also a thoroughly nice chap too. 10 American Presidents is of course part of the Agora Podcast Network, so search for other great independently produced podcasts by simply going on to agorapodcastnetwork.com. Now, folks, there are two ways which you can help to support this podcast and the work that I do. Firstly, you can write a review on a podcatcher of your choice, ideally Apple Podcasts, but anyone uh, will actually help as um, this also helps others to find the podcast. Another way of which you can help me is by throwing me a little of your hard-earned cash. You can do this by going on to patreon.com and donating $2 per show 
or actually there is there is actually a third way you can actually go on to 10usp.com and hit in that donate button if you do that i promise to use your money wisely i won't spend it on fast cars and loose ladies but on sensible things like server upgrades and the like lastly can i implore you to head over to our facebook group and join it if you haven't done so already and show it some love because it needs it uh, and there you'll find there's a whole group of um, some other 10 American presidents fans. Now, on with the show. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> Seven years ago, when in the course of human events, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America, and a white America, and Latino America, and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Abraham Lincoln, February 12, 1809 through April 15, 1865, was an American statesman and lawyer who served as the 16th President of the United States from March 1861 until his assassination in April 1865. This podcast is going to focus on the young Lincoln, roughly the first half of his life, the period of time when Lincoln was, in his own words, a piece of floating driftwood. My name is Jonathan Putnam, and I am a lawyer and author, the author of a number of books about the young Abraham Lincoln as part of the Lincoln and Speed mystery series. The books include Final Resting Place, Perish from the Earth, and These Honored Dad, all of which concern the life and times of Abraham Lincoln in the late 1830s, part of the period we'll be covering here today. Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809, on Sinking Spring Farm, which was in Hardin County, Kentucky. He was born in a one-room log cabin, about 16 by 18 feet in dimensions. It had a dirt floor and no glass windows. So it was pretty primitive, but it was a comparatively large pioneer cabin in the region for the time. The America that Lincoln was born into had 17 states, the most recent of which was Ohio, which had joined the Union in 1803. According to the census of 1810, the year after Lincoln was born, there were 7.2 million residents of the United States, of whom 1.2 million were slaves. The largest city in the country was New York City, with about 96,000 persons. Washington, D.C., recently determined to be the capital of the new country, had about 8,000 persons of population. The state of Kentucky, where Lincoln was born, had just over 400,000 residents. Kentucky at the time was on the edge of the country. There were no states to the west of Kentucky. 
Illinois, the state that now proudly proclaims that it is the land of Lincoln on its all state license plates, among other places, the Illinois Territory was just organized for the first time in 1809. If we looked at the newspaper for the next day, the day after Lincoln was born, the lead story in the paper was the Electoral College certifying the election of James Madison to be the fourth president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson was just in his final month in office when Lincoln was born. Elsewhere in the newspaper, there was talk of the Non-Intercourse Bill, a bill that the Congress passed and Jefferson signed at the end of his term to try to ban all trade with the two great European powers, Britain and France, a bill that was spectacularly unsuccessful and was one of the causes of the War of 1812, which was to come uh, just a few years into Lincoln's life. The principal international events that took place in 1809 of note were the Napoleonic Wars, which were being waged and were raging all across Europe. Other notable people who were born in 1809 included the uh, godfather of all mystery story writers, someone uh, close to my heart, Edgar Allan Poe, and Charles Darwin happened to be born on the exact same day as Lincoln, February 12th, 1809. So two of the great, most consequential persons in the English-speaking world of the 19th century uh, both entered the world on February 12, 1809. Lincoln's father was named Thomas Lincoln. He was a farmer. He was probably what we would think of nowadays as a middle-class farmer. He was not dirt poor, but he was certainly not a wealthy or large landowning farmer. Lincoln's mother was a woman named Nancy Hanks Lincoln. They were fairly itinerant at the time, moving around trying to find a a place to set down roots and establish a, a sustainable family farm. Shortly after Lincoln's birth, the family moved to Knob Creek, Kentucky, and then a couple years thereafter to Pigeon Creek in Perry County, southern Indiana. Thomas Lincoln, in a roundabout way, left Kentucky for Indiana and then later Illinois because of slavery, although not for the moral opposition to slavery that was to be the hallmark of his son, Abraham. Thomas Lincoln was as many middle class or lower middle class white Southerners at the time was opposed to slavery on economic grounds. He felt with some justification that he could not compete with the effectively free labor that African-American enslaved persons provided to the large wealthy landowners who dominated Southern agriculture. The other problem that continuously had Thomas moving with his family further west had to do with land titles. Land titles is quite simply who owns a given piece of property, and this was a real mess in what was at the time the western frontier 
of the United States. All of the land, of course, had originally belonged to the Native American tribes. The United States government had, over time, been pushing the Native tribes further and further west to make more and more room for the largely white population of the United States. But exactly the process by which any given piece of land came into ownership of the United States and then was transferred in ownership from the government to an individual private person was a real mess. There were not good records. You very often had two or three or four persons claiming entitlement to the same piece of land. And there were no good surveys, especially in western Kentucky and southern Illinois or Indiana. These were often just swamps or forests and where one plot of land ended and another begun was itself very hard to determine. And so Thomas kept moving his family west in in search of a place where he, first of all, did not need to compete with the, from his perspective, economically unfair uh, institution of slavery. And second, far enough west, far enough away from the rest of civilization that no one was going to contest his right to settle and farm a given piece of land. Lincoln had a complicated relationship um, with both of his parents. His mother, Nancy, died when he was nine years old of what was called at the time the milk sickness. And this was a fairly common cause of death on the frontier at the time. The family's milk cows ate, ate a white snake root plant, which was poisonous. It was not poisonous to the cow, but it got into the milk that was supplied by the cow and turned out to be poisonous to humans who then consumed the milk. So Nancy Lincoln was poisoned and died when Abraham was nine years old, which was a great tragedy for him and his family. Lincoln had a difficult relationship throughout his entire life, and especially as he was starting to grow up with his father. Thomas was probably not illiterate, but not very literate. He was a hard father. He was known to drink, as many men in the West were, of course. And he expected to get the most out of his son. At the time, until a boy was 21 years old, he was viewed as the property of his father, and the father was entitled to the fruits of the labor. So even when Abraham grew to be 16 or 17 or 18 years old, Thomas would effectively rent him out to neighbors who needed their fields turned over or whatnot. And then Thomas was legally entitled to, and very much did, collect the money that the neighbors would pay for Lincoln's labor. Not surprisingly, this caused some significant tension between Lincoln and his father. The only really useful parental figure in Lincoln's life was his stepmother. The year after his mother, Nancy, died in 1818, Thomas Lincoln, Abraham's father, determined or realized that he had no hope of raising Abraham and his older sister by himself. They were living in Indiana at this point, but Thomas was familiar with a widow woman with three children of her own uh, whose husband had died. 
Thomas uh, wrote to her and they agreed to combine their families to marry since each of them had had their spouses die. And this woman, who was named Sarah Bush Lincoln, became Abraham Lincoln's stepmother. The story of how Thomas went to get Sarah and her three children is itself pretty remarkable. He left Abraham and his older sister, who were at the time about 10 and 13 years old, left them alone in their cabin in Indiana, went on a several months trip to Kentucky, collected Sarah and um, her three children, and then rode in the crude carriage that he owned back to Kentucky where he had left his young teenage children. There's a story that Sarah was horrified when she arrived at Thomas's home and discovered two completely dirt-covered creatures who turned out to be her new stepchildren who her new husband had left to fend for themselves while he had gone to collect her. It's said that the first thing that she did was give them a long bath. There was no such thing in America at the time as universal public education or free public education. Instead, schooling was typically carried out by individual, often itinerant, school teachers who would move from place to place, find a building in which they could organize a school, and then hang out a shingle. They were often themselves minimally educated, but local parents who were inclined to send their children to school were typically overjoyed that there was a teacher in the neighborhood. So Abraham first attended a school, according to records that exist, for about three months in 1820. So he would have been 11 years old at the time. That was the first time he had any formal schooling. That school ran for about three months and then closed. The teacher moved on somewhere else, so there was no more school for Abraham. There was another one that opened up, but it was four miles away, and so Abraham was only able to attend it sporadically. And then that school, uh, he was no longer able to attend. And then a third school the following year, so this was when he was about 12 or 13, a new schoolmaster came and used the building of the original schoolmaster for about six months. So all told, Abraham Lincoln had just about one year of formal schooling in his entire life. Add to that the fact that his father was barely literate, his mother died when he was young, and his stepmother was, while a loving and warm parental figure, his stepmother was certainly illiterate. And it's all the more remarkable when you think about what he's going to go on to accomplish in his life. So while Lincoln was self-taught as a reader, he quickly became a voracious reader. And this was something that was encouraged by his uh, stepmother. It's said that he had a copy of Aesop's fables and he quickly memorized them. He read them so much. Some of the other books that he read as a child, The Pilgrim's Progress, Grimshaw's History of the United States. And, and later in life, he was in addition to reading all of his law books, of course, he was a great reader and lover of Shakespeare.
the first time that Lincoln spent any significant amount of time away from home and away from the narrow part of Kentucky and Indiana where he had grown up was in 1828 when he was 17 years old. He took a flat boat uh, on the Illinois and then down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Steamboats were just starting to come into common use on the rivers of the western United States, but much commerce, especially commerce going downriver, was conducted by flatboat, which was basically nothing more than a what it sounds like, a, a flat barge on which uh, whatever goods you were taking down the river to sell, you would load up, and then you would, might have a pole to help you steer or an oar to help you steer, but you relied on the current and nothing but the current to propel you down the river. Uh, Lincoln and uh, two of uh, other local boys uh, took a flatboat that was loaded with meat, corn, and flour down the river, ultimately getting as far as New Orleans, the uh, great city at the mouth of the Mississippi River, where any goods that they had not sold at stops along the way, they sold in New Orleans. You can think of this as a little bit of a Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn existence or interlude for Lincoln, where he is 17 years old, at least for the time being free of his father's heavy hand on his own, on the wild rivers of the western United States, floating down them, stopping from time to time at plantations along the river to trade goods, and then finally ending up in New Orleans. New Orleans, which was, at the time as it is now, one of the most interesting, most cosmopolitan, most foreign cities in the United States. There was a lot of French and Spanish-spoken New Orleans, and significantly, there were also a lot of African-American slaves in New Orleans. And so this trip that Lincoln took down the river in 1828 ended up producing Lincoln's first sustained exposure to the horrors of uh, African-American slavery in the United States. Lincoln, unfortunately, did not ever leave a detailed account of his trip down the river to New Orleans, but it is known that he spent time observing the great slave markets in New Orleans and certainly became uh, or started to become on this trip very aware of and informed about the horrors of the practice of slavery. So slavery had been, of course, a defining feature of the uh, American landscape since it was settled in the late 17th, settled in a significant way in the late 17th and then the 18th century. And it's important to realize that it was not merely a a Southern institution at first. It was an American institution. Indeed, in the New York Evening Post, the very day after Lincoln was born. So if you looked at the New York Evening Post of February 13th, 1809, there were two notices. One, quote, for the sale of a very valuable black woman, an excellent house servant, who has no husband or child, 21 years of age, sold for no fault. And right under that, a notice saying, wanted black boy to purchase for years or for life or to hire by month to do housework to tend the table for whom a fair price will be given. And so that's in New York in 1809, 30 years after the uh, Declaration of Independence. 
slavery was becoming predominantly a Southern institution because, of course, enslaved African Americans were used predominantly in America for the large-scale agriculture, especially cotton and sugar growing, which took place predominantly in the South. So, for example, Illinois, which, as we said, became a territory in 1809, and became a state in 1818. In the founding constitution of Illinois, it specifically outlawed the institution of slavery. But that was at the time very much a state-by-state decision, and while later in the 19th century, the expansion or not of slavery becomes very much a national issue, thinking of the bloody Kansas uprisings, for example, and the debates over admitting new slave states and new free states that dominated the decade or two before the Civil War. Back in the 1820s, it was more in the nature of a looming conflict, a brewing conflict that some people could see on the horizon as opposed to a a debate that took a great deal of the national attention. In 1830, just as Lincoln is turning 21 and is finally able to leave his father's house and begin his own life in earnest, his father moves to Illinois and Lincoln moves with him. His father moves to Decatur, Illinois, which at the time consisted of a dozen log houses set among a grove of oak trees. And Lincoln himself moves to Illinois and stays in Illinois. Then in 1831, Lincoln once again takes a flatboat loaded with goods for sale down the river to New Orleans. On this flatboat trip, as luck would have it, just as he's starting the trip, his flatboat is snagged by a mill dam, by a water wheel that is located in a little town right along the Sangamon River called New Salem, Illinois. His flatboat is snagged there for a couple days. Lincoln has to unload the boat and figure out a way to get it unsnagged. And in the course of this, friends with a couple of the residents of New Salem and comes up with a plan that he will return to New Salem to start living when he gets back from New Orleans. He goes down to New Orleans, then returns upriver and goes to New Salem to start his adult life in earnest there. The first thing that happens to him when he gets to New Salem is that he's called up for a war. The Cape Fear Recorder, Wilmington, North Carolina, 20th June, 1832. The latest from the West from the Missouri Republican. The war. Disastrous accounts are brought by every arrival from above of the massacre of families residing near the scene of Indian hostilities. We fear that these barbarities are to be continued for a long time. Indeed, from the complexion of our accounts, nothing but the most energetic measures and daring bravery will be able to restore peace to that section of the country. The American government had been pushing the Indian tribes further and further west. At the time of uh, that Illinois became a state, what's now central Illinois had been occupied by several tribes of Native American, including the Sioux and Fox tribes. The United States government had effectively tricked them out of the land, had promised them land further west, west of the Mississippi, and then had not delivered on that promise. 
In the summer of 1832, the leader of those tribes, an Indian warrior named Black Hawk, came back across the river to try to reclaim the land. Black Hawk came with about 400 horsemen, about 2,000 persons overall. And both the state and the federal government reacted very violently and very urgently since the whole project of expanding the United States of America westward effectively depended on pushing the Indian tribes further and further west to make room for the white settlers. So the federal and state troops and able-bodied men were called up to form part of the militia. Lincoln was one of the people who uh, volunteered for service. He was, in fact, elected a captain in his militia, and they went off in pursuit of the Black Hawk. Uh, Lincoln later joked about his military service because his military service mostly consisted of wrestling in camp with his other fellow militiamen, waiting for orders to do something, and then marching about in central Illinois in search of Black Hawk and his warriors. Lincoln himself never saw any active battle. He said later, much later in life he had a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes during his service in the Black Hawk War. The Black Hawk War, to the extent it's remembered at all in history, is remembered for the remarkable fact of trivia that three future presidents in the United States served in this small engagement against Indians in central Illinois. Lincoln, Zachary Taylor, who would of course later become a hero of the Mexican War, and Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederate States of America, all served in the militias that uh, chased after Black Hawk and swiftly routed him and drove the Indians back to where they had been sent west of the river. After Lincoln returned from his second trip down the river to New Orleans, he settled in New Salem, a new settlement right along the Sangamon River in central Illinois. And he lived there for six years, doing a variety of assorted jobs. This is the period of life which he later described himself as a piece of floating driftwood. It's an apt description. We have the image here of a untamed, unformed man. He is very large, very big. He's six foot four, about 210 pounds as he enters his 20s, which would today be large, but at the time in the 1830s was extremely large on the American frontier. So he was almost certainly the largest man in town, the largest man probably for miles and miles around. He was largely self-taught. He was extremely friendly. Witness the fact that he decided to move to New Salem after making friends with the townsfolk when he had gotten snagged on the mill in town. And he was, I think we can say, ambitious without really knowing that he was ambitious. He tried a lot of different occupations during this time and didn't really stick at any of them and didn't really succeed at any of them. He went into business with a partner in New Salem, opening a general store. And a few months later, the store winked out, as he said. It closed. It just ran out of business, ran out of money. After that, he later opened another store in New Salem, and it too 
failed. He opened a grocery or tavern for a period of time. He uh, got the commission to be the postmaster of New Salem, and he was a surveyor. His service as a postmaster is revelatory of the type of person he was at the time. So the post delivery would come to New Salem once a day, maybe once every other day. And Lincoln's job was to go around and deliver it to persons or tell persons that they had mail waiting for them. At the time, the recipient paid for the postage. There was no such thing as postage stamps. A letter would be sent. It would arrive at its destination. And then the recipient would come and pay for the letter. And actually, the postage rates were incredibly high. At this point in time, the postage rate was something like 25 cents for a one-page letter or 50 cents for a two-page letter. So persons often did not want to pick up letters sent to them just because the postage was so high. In any event, there are lots of accounts of the time of persons coming to the post office when Lincoln was supposed to be there, and Lincoln wasn't there. And so they either had... Uh, come to the post office in vain, or they themselves sorted through the letters that Lincoln had left, and maybe they left the money for the letters, maybe they didn't. Lincoln was, I think we can conclude, a negligent post office officer. Uh, I think it was not, certainly was not because of greed. He wasn't trying to trick anyone, and his fees were themselves coming from the postage he collected. So by not being present to collect postage when people came to pick up their letters. He was, in effect, cheating himself. He just couldn't be bothered to stay by his post at the post office, and he was off doing other things. As I said earlier, Lincoln had two stores that failed, and he actually had an enormous debt that was generated as a result of these two failed stores. That is, debt he had purchased, his interest in the stores and inventory for the stores from other people. And then when his stores went out of business, he had no way to pay back that debt. The debt amounted in the end to something like $1,000, which was a huge amount of money at the time. And indeed, Lincoln carried that debt around with him for years, probably more than a decade. He referred to it jokingly as the national debt. And he was making payments. He paid it all off. He paid it very honestly and paid it very carefully, but paid it in small increments because it was such a large debt in comparison to the income he was able to earn. So in addition to a, a failed storekeeper and an indifferent postmaster, he was also a surveyor. We said earlier that a big issue in the West was land titles and figuring out who owned what pieces of property, and indeed, what was even a piece of property that someone was going to own. And to determine that, you needed a surveyor, someone to walk around with a compass and a chain and lay out exactly the meets and bounds of a given piece of property. Uh, Lincoln actually really enjoyed this job. He said that it was one of his favorite jobs that he ever did. The problem was, in the course of doing the job, one day the sheriff of the county showed up and repossessed all of his surveying equipment. The person to whom Lincoln owed his store debt had gone to the sheriff, and the sheriff had come to seize Lincoln's surveying equipment 
as a consequence of the debt and to ensure that Lincoln paid the debt. This, of course, put an end to Lincoln's surveying career because he didn't have the tools needed to survey the property. But in fact, as a sign of what a well-liked person he was, another man in the community purchased the Lincoln surveying equipment from the sheriff and then gave it back to Lincoln so that he could continue his surveying. So again, we have this image of a young man, very talented, very energetic, very friendly, but not really sure what he wants to do with life, drifting from job to job, trying to figure out what is his purpose in life? What is he meant to do? The frontier was overwhelmingly male. There were a lot more men than women on the frontier, but there were some women and Lincoln was certainly interested in them. He had a number of incipient relationships with women. And there was one woman in particular who he, we would say today, fell in love with, a woman named Anne Rutledge, who also lived in the New Salem area. Anne Rutledge was engaged when Lincoln met her to another man, a man named John McNeil or John McNamara. But McNeil or McNamara had left Illinois, left New Salem to supposedly get his family and move them to Illinois and had never been heard from again, had basically disappeared off the face of the earth. Lincoln and Ann Rutledge started courting and was hesitant about it because she felt like she was already committed to this other man, but then fell in love with Lincoln and the two of them had agreed to get married. Anne wanted to wait to tell her now former fiance that she was moving on. So in other words, she didn't want to just marry Lincoln without telling the fellow she had been engaged to, even though the fellow she had been engaged to had been gone for a year and as far as anyone knew, had died somewhere out in the vast United States and never to be heard from again. But then before Lincoln and Anne could solemnize their relationship, Anne Rutledge died. She died of what was called at the time brain fever. It's probably what we would call meningitis. And it was a great tragedy for Lincoln. He was broken up about it and uh, it affected him deeply. This uh, Anne Rutledge died in August, 1835. 45 there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So politics and elections were an important feature of the young American states in the 1830s. It was a very politically active period. The two major parties were the Democratic Party and the Whig Party, Whig, W-H-I-G. The Republican Party did not exist at the time. And elections and campaigns were very vigorous and often very violent. I solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of Illinois, and that I will faithfully discharge the duties of the office of state. There were many of the issues that the Illinois legislature dealt with at the time were sort of classically local concerns. Who was going to be appointed to various positions? How were the counties going to be organized? The state was growing, and so the state legislature constantly had to sort of tend to the organizational structure of the state government, which was the state was only 10 or 15 years old at this point. So they were making things up as they went along. There were two big policy issues that the Illinois legislature faced in the 1830s. One had to do with money and another had to do with what were called internal improvements, which effectively what we would call infrastructure. Today, we have a Federal Reserve System, and we have bills issued by the federal government and coins issued by the federal government, and that's the money that we use. We take it for granted. That was not the case at the time. There were big disputes at the time about whether there would be a federal system of money or not. There had been a National Bank of the United States. It had been disbanded. There had been then a second National Bank of the United States, and Andrew Jackson as as president had disbanded that. At the same time, either many individual banks inside of states started issuing paper notes, and some states, such as Illinois, also chartered a state bank to issue paper notes. So it was a very chaotic system. No one had a very good sense of what we would think of as sort of modern economics, modern macroeconomics of how money should be created and how it should circulate. And the Illinois legislature spent a lot of time trying, with a lot of failures, I think you'd have to say, trying to figure out how to organize a sensible system of money in the state. The other big issue that the Illinois legislature was concerned with was the internal improvement system. The railroads were just starting to be built, but there were effectively no railroads in the state of Illinois in the early 1830s. What the the state of Illinois had was a lot of rivers. The Mississippi River ran along most of its western border, and there were a great number of rivers 
inside, internal to the state, many of which then emptied into the Mississippi. And it also had Lake Michigan in the northeast corner of the state by where Chicago is. And Illinois also had a spectacular recent example of a successful state infrastructure project, and that was the Erie Canal. The state of New York had dug the Erie Canal in the 1820s, or had hired a lot of mostly Irish immigrants to dig the uh, Erie Canal, and it had proved to be a spectacular success for the state of New York. It had connected the Great Lakes to, in that case, the Hudson River, and had given a dramatic jumpstart to commerce in New York. As soon as this was completed, and even before it was completed, all of the other states of the what was then sort of the Northwest, Indiana, Illinois, rushed to try to copy New York's experience by building canals as a way to move goods and simulate commerce. It's no different than the federal highway system, the interstate highway system being built out in the 1950s, or indeed the internet being built out in the 2000s, that it was a mechanism to facilitate the exchange of goods and information. Again, there were no railroads, so the notion of moving goods by uh, water seemed like far and away the best way to promote commerce and, for example, to allow farmers in Illinois to get their goods to market. So the Illinois legislature spent a lot of time debating how best to copy the example of New York and the Erie Canal and to promote, again, what was called internal improvements, infrastructure that would facilitate the growth of the state and its economy. So the state legislature served in two-year terms, and typically the legislature would only meet for two or three months of those two-year terms. So, for example, there was an election in the summer of 1834. The legislature that was elected that summer opened in the beginning of December 1834 and served through middle of February or so, 1835. The session was then closed and there would be no more legislative meetings until an election in the summer of 1836. So it was a, an election every two years for a legislature that would then meet for two or three months and then everyone would go their separate ways. So Abraham Lincoln first ran for the Illinois state legislature in 1832 when he was 23 years old. It was basically right after he had moved to New Salem. And I think we have to see this as an example of him being, first of all, very capable, which he clearly was throughout his life, and also um, very ambitious and also very popular. He had a lot of friends. He was a gregarious person. He was a storyteller. And that led him naturally to politics, which was a profession like law, which he's going to get to shortly in the story, where you did a lot of talking and where talking and spreading ideas was the currency of, of the exercise. Lincoln first ran for the Illinois legislature in 1832. He was one of 13 people in Sangamon County running for four seats, and he came in in eighth place. So he failed in his first attempt to be elected, but he then ran again 
the following election year, which was 1834, again, the legislature was elected every two years, and this time was elected, and he went on to serve four consecutive terms in the legislature. So he served in the legislature from 1834 through 1841. When Lincoln entered politics, he did so as a member of the Whig Party, and he remained a member of the Whig Party as long as the Whig Party was in existence, which was in through the 1850s. It's a little bit hard to map today's politics onto the party system that existed in the 1830s, but generally speaking, the Whig Party was in favor of an expansive role of the government. The Whig Party was in favor of the internal improvements, which was the state spending money to improve the state in order to facilitate trade and commerce. The Democratic Party, which was the other principal party at the time, generally tended to want to have the state have a small role and have individuals have a comparatively larger role, where the Whig Party was effectively what we would call sort of the party of big government. Although, of course, what the government did at the time was tiny compared to what the modern American government does. But the Whig Party was in favor of the internal improvements. The Whig Party was in favor of the state of Illinois organizing a state bank when the second bank of the United States was put out of existence by Andrew Jackson. And those were both effectively big government, pro-government policies that Lincoln himself was also in favor of. At the time that Lincoln first ran for office, he was a peculiar, physically peculiar figure. There was, I think it's fair to say, no one who looked like him in the surrounding area. A man named Stephen T. Logan, who was later to become one of Lincoln's law partners, recalled a time when Lincoln, in his very first campaign, the campaign that he was going to lose for the state legislature, spoke at the old courthouse in Springfield. Logan recalls, he was a very tall and gawky and rough-looking fellow. His pantaloons didn't meet his shoes by six inches. But after he began speaking, I became very much interested in him. He made a very sensible speech. I think that's a great uh, testimony. It gives us a great image of Lincoln on the stump. And we say today stump speech for a standard speech by a politician. In these days, it was literally a stump speech. Politicians were always talking. There were lots of newspapers at the time, but it was still the case that the main way politicians would spread their word was by physically moving around the county that they were campaigning in and talking to people. And they would literally have a tree stump that they would put on a field. The candidate would stand up on top of the stump and declaim on the issues of the day and his positions on the issues. Now, we have to imagine that Lincoln, being so much taller than everyone else, probably needed the tree stump less than his fellow candidates. But nonetheless, we have to picture Lincoln, gawky, raw-boned, a prominent jaw, high-peaked forehead, wearing clothes that did not fit. Logan recalls him, the ends of his pants, six inches above his shoes. But when he gets up on the stump, something happens. He talks with a force, with a clarity that is unfamiliar to the people listening to him and makes an impression on them. And that's true the first time that he's a candidate for legislature as a 23-year-old young man. And that, of course, remains true throughout his life and throughout his political career. One issue that Lincoln dealt with in his service in the legislature, which ended up being pretty consequential for him, was the location of the state capital of Illinois. When Lincoln moved to Illinois, the state capital was located pretty far south 
and was an inconvenient and out-of-the-way place for the state legislature to meet. Lincoln, along with other representatives from Sangamon County, got together and rallied the legislature around the principle of moving it to Springfield, Illinois, which of course is where the state capital of Illinois is today. It's a interesting story because the Sangamon County delegation in the legislature all happened to be tall. None of them were as tall as Lincoln, but they were all tall men for the time. There were nine of them, and they were called the Long Nine because it was said that they collectively measured 54 feet in height, which is to say averaged six feet per man. And that was unusual. So you imagine a legislature meeting and there was this group of nine legislators, all of whom happened to be from Sangamon County, all of whom happened to be tall. And whether through their height or their force of personality or their powers of persuasion or whatever, they were able to convince the rest of the legislature to move the state capital from Vandalia to Springfield. They were successful. The capital moved to Springfield. That's then where Lincoln settled and made his life. And so it's a town that today is very much associated with Lincoln, all because of the efforts in the mid-1830s of Sangamon's Long Nine. We have him in this period where he's a piece of floating driftwood. He's trying to be a storekeeper, postman, a surveyor. None of these things are quite working. And at some point, he hits on the idea of being a lawyer. And he makes himself a lawyer. Again, being self-taught, there were just starting to be law schools in America. Harvard Law School has opened up in 1818. But by far the most common way, especially out in the West where Lincoln is, to become a lawyer was to what's known as read law. So you would literally read law books and teach yourself the law. You might work with an older lawyer clerking in his office and have him instruct you in it, but you would on your own read the law. And that's what Lincoln did. He got a hold of of a copy of two volume set of Blackstone's commentaries on the English common law, which was the classic book from England describing the common law. And that law had been adopted by most United States, including Illinois. So by reading about English common law from the 18th century, he was effectively learning the modern Illinois law. And he read the Blackstone's front to cover two huge volumes twice. That was Lincoln reading law. He then had to go meet with a judge or a senior lawyer. The lawyer would give him an examination to determine whether he was sufficiently well-versed in the law. Lincoln passed that examination, and in September 1836, two justices of the Illinois Supreme Court licensed him to practice law. Thereby, he became a lawyer. So no law school, no classes, no studying. One exam, with this oral exam given to him by the senior member of the bar, and he became a lawyer. So he became a lawyer at the end of 1836. He formed a law partnership with a colleague of his in the state legislature named John Todd Stewart. Stewart and Lincoln partnership formed in 1837, and they set up shop. In Springfield, Illinois, there was a row of two-story red brick buildings that had been erected by a man named Hoffman. It was referred to as Hoffman's Row. And Stewart and Lincoln's offices were in the second story of one of these buildings, 
The address was number 4 Hoffman's Row, Springfield. And it was there in April 1837 that Abraham Lincoln began his career as a lawyer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.